Welcome to episode 13 of Swift Unwrapped, a podcast about the Swift programming language and other Swift news. I'm Jesse Squires. And I'm JP Smart. Uh, this week, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Cobaton. Uh, Cobaton empowers mobile developers. They have a complete mobile mobile device lab um, that you can manage these devices, access them as you need, and it really allows you to uh, test your mobile apps on real devices. Um, so you have access to physical devices, which helps identify issues that you wouldn't otherwise be able to catch just in the simulator alone. You can identify these issues much faster by having access to the activity logs. Um, and you can test exactly the way you want, whether via automated scripts or uh, manual testing even. Um, you can start with a monthly plan starting as low as $10 a month, and you don't need to commit to an annual plan to be able to get started. So you can cancel any time. To learn more, check out kobaton.com slash swiftunwrapped. Cobaton uh, is K-O-B-I-T-O-N dot com slash Swift Unwrapped. Our thanks to Cobaton. All right. And uh, this week we are going to be talking about our predictions uh, and maybe hopes for WWDC this year, which is uh, just a few weeks away. That's right. Uh, predictions and maybe wish list as well, because some of this stuff, we're really not sure if it's going <laughs> to land. Yeah, I think the biggest uh, smoking gun here, or like the the most tangible thing to really consider, is the uh, Swift syntax structured editing library that was announced uh, back in February. Actually, uh, David Farler sent the email and uh, basically announced um, these tools uh, for uh, Swift syntax and structure editing. Um, he he begins the email saying that, you know, a truly modern compiler needs to have an excellent uh, IDE and tools. Most of what we see through this is uh, SourceKit, which JP knows very well. And um, yeah, our uh, expectation is that uh this will uh, hopefully uh, manifest as refactoring tools in Xcode this year, which would be Xcode 9, I guess. Yeah, which is really inevitable. Uh, there are major hints, you know, this Swift syntax structure library aside, uh, there are uh, hints in SourceKit that even shipped with the official Xcode 8.3 and later, including 3.1, 3.2, et cetera. Um, there are references to rename actions. Uh, and the way this is structured, it really looks like there's a variety of actionable um, actions that you'll be able to perform on certain declarations and even references. Uh, so places where whether you're declaring new types, methods, etc., or using uh, those declarations. So rename is the first one that kind of popped up in Xcode 8.3. And there's, I'm sure, more that uh, that are going to come, whether that's um, well, who knows really what that could be, but the Swift uh, structured syntax editing library does give some strong hints as to, well, maybe it's um, take this chunk of code and turn it into a method. Uh, for example, you know, refactoring code or refactoring tools that um, 
people familiar with other languages have had in their IDEs for a long time. Yeah, even if it ends up only being renaming, I'll be happy to see that the uh, compiler team is tackling one of the hardest problems in computer science. <laughs> so yeah, well, there's there's limited renaming functionality um, right now in Xcode, where uh, I think the only way to access this is via keyboard shortcut. But mm. if you're as long as um, your Xcode project has been fully indexed, yeah, uh, which isn't always the case, right? Because this is done asynchronously as you work with your code in Xcode. Sure. Um, but as, as soon as it's fully indexed, uh, if you hit Control-Command-E on any token that uh, that your cursor is on, it'll um, basically provide you with multiple cursors mm. for all of the uses of that token. Sure, that's the uh, like the edit in scope. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, so there's also a, a menu, uh, menu item for it. Um, but it only edits it in scope. Right. So it'll only edit it within that file. Um, so this is a very limited uh, use if you have, say, like an internal type that's or an internal method declaration that's being used elsewhere in your code, uh, that, that won't be reflected in whatever editing you do there. So it's quite limited. Right. And all jokes aside about naming, uh, I think this is actually one of the hardest parts of Swift development with like the the great API transformation and all the API, API uh, naming guidelines. Uh, I spend way too much time trying to name variables and functions uh, the right, uh, quote, Swifty way. It's like, oh, should this be a verb or a noun? Should it be present tense or past tense? I know. Or, so I'm constantly like renaming things all the time. So if this were just rename refactoring only, I would be. <laughs> well, yeah, the the guidelines for, for API naming uh, as of Swift 3, um, they're well-defined, but they're still uh, not necessarily straightforward, even for na- native English speakers. Mm, for sure. Um, let alone, you know, people whose first language isn't English. Mm-hmm. Uh, must be very hard. And in fact, what I find hilarious in all this is that um, it's easier to uh, apply those guidelines by writing Objective C and have the Clang importer automatically <laughs> apply its rules <laughs> right. than it is to do it for Swift, right. uh, which is really backwards because it means it's harder to write APIs that conform to these guidelines in Swift. Um, See, Objective C is still useful. It's still alive. It's it, it just won't die. Um, so yeah, this this renaming support uh, and other refactoring tools, I'm sure, will um, attract a lot of applause at WWDC when this is inevitably announced. Right, and hopefully uh, it works well in practice. Yeah, uh, currently Objective C has renaming, like extracting to a method. What else can you do in Objective C right now? Uh, I think you can also move code around. Okay. Um, which is less about um, semantic refactoring and mm-hmm. I think more about just text editing in general, right? Where you can right. highlight a bunch of code and kind of shift it up or down in the scope. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Cool. So uh, some other things have come up as well. Right. Well, there's a few other hints. Um, there's a PR that landed in Swift Package Manager uh, 1098 that um, exposes cross-compilation support in Swift Package Manager. And what this essentially enables is compiling for uh, 
a target platform that is different than the one that you're building on. So um, one example might be, uh, say you want to build for Ubuntu, but you're on your Mac. Uh, as long as you specify this destination.json file that highlights or, or that uh, that points to things like what SDK to use, uh, what what the toolchain directory is for that target platform, um, the architecture, a bunch of you know compilation flags, etc. Then you can cross compile using Swift Package Manager. However, this is really involved, um, I guess you could say, right? Uh, so all of the underlying functionality exists there to do cross compilation for either. Uh, Ubuntu while you're compiling on Mac or a different version of the Mac SDK than the machine that you're currently running on. Um, and this, in practice, would really enable compiling for iOS as well, except that it's kind of involved. Uh, it's not like there's this nice command where you can just say Swift build iOS, but you know, in, in theory, all of the underlying functionality is all there. And so, you know, Loosely, all that's really required is to have a nice UI on top of this for Swift PM to support building for iOS. So I strongly suspect that something along these lines will be done um, and hopefully announced around WWDC. One of the surprises I think people have is that Swift PM is really only used on and like really intended to be used on uh, Linux right now for Linux packages. Like it hasn't really supported iOS uh, development. And uh, I think that's probably one of the the biggest disappointments that I've seen, like with people um, just wishing that they could use it for iOS instead of CocoaPods or Carthage or whatever. So uh, I think that'd be a welcome change for sure. Yeah, I would certainly love to see that. Um, an- another very useful case where SwiftPM has proved handy is when building uh, command line apps in Swift because you can statically compile. Uh, even the, the standard library, you can statically compile, so you just have the one binary uh, for your command line target, uh, which makes it much easier to redistribute. Um, it makes it a lot easier to install and, and move around on the, uh, on the file, f- file system as well. Um, so that's another case where it's been useful, but really limited in functionality. You know, you, you can kind of count the number of popular Swift command line tools on you know both hands. Um, it's not the vast majority of places where Swift is is used. Yeah, uh, and I think if SPM were to to add iOS support, that would obviously increase adoption of SPM. Uh, I think you would they they would see so many more people using it and testing out and providing feedback. Um, I don't know how high this is on that team's list of priorities, but um, I'm sure they they recognize that iOS support would be very valuable, uh, if for nothing else, just for feedback and bug reports, bug fixes, et cetera. Absolutely. Um, Now, this PR for cross-compilation wasn't even contributed from someone inside Apple. It was uh, an outside contribution by Johannes Weiss. And that was that landed uh, late April, it looks like. So it's clear that you know there was feedback from uh, from Ankit and Daniel Dunbar. So it's clear that the Swift PM team you know wanted this to be in because because they managed to get it in. But it's kind of unclear to me as to whether or not this is um, you know as important to them uh, or as a priority to them, I should say, uh, as as outsiders. Um, but it seems quite likely that you can expect something along these lines at Dub Dub. 
Yeah. And then earlier this week, uh, Keith Smiley tweeted out some references. Uh, he linked to uh, some files in SPM uh, that reference Xcode. And the the thought was that SPM might have uh, Xcode integration soon, but it looks like maybe this isn't quite the, the smoking gun that, that we thought at first. Yeah. So... Um, really, the hint here is that there's an Xcode compiler define, um, so you can do the Octothorpe if Xcode. Um, and I I really do think that the reason why that's there, and and in fact, this has been used in Swift PM for over a year, uh, probably longer than that, and it's probably just used when you're building Swift PM itself using its Xcode project. Uh, things get a little murky when you talk about build tools being built with other build tools. But <laughs> um, I think this is really to, uh, you know, to to build Swift PM itself that this is useful for, um, not necessarily that there is a deep integration with Xcode. However, there has been a flurry of activity in Swift PM and in LL Build, the uh, more the underlying build tool that Swift PM uh, invokes to do the actual building. There's been a flurry of activity in the last few weeks to kind of clean up the Xcode projects to build those projects specifically. Um, and so this may be entirely unrelated uh, or it might be kind of an indication that uh, there's renewed interest in having tighter integration between Xcode and Swift PM. Yeah, I know that's definitely on the roadmap and definitely... I don't know, I would say like medium high on their priority list based on what I've heard from the core team and the other Swift team members. And again, that goes back to like getting more people to use SPM and provide feedback. I think integrating with Xcode is definitely a key part of that. Um, and I guess you'd need integration with Xcode in order to, prov- in order to provide iOS support uh, as well. So you yeah, probably, yeah. Yeah. Um, because otherwise, it's, it's kind of tricky to get um, uh, iOS apps installed on a device without Xcode. Right. Uh, <laughs> e- even with yeah. with Xcode build, it's it's really uh, really tricky. It, it's definitely doable, but you either have to resort to um, using uh, the Apple iOS configurator app or to use. Um, uh, iDevice installer, which kind of reverse engineered a lot of the USB connection code around connecting to iOS devices. So uh, it's possible that there's unrelated changes that are coming to say Xcode build that makes that easier. But um, you know, as Xcode stands today, you'd need integration in Xcode to be able to deploy like that. Yeah, I'd love to see that though. That, yeah, that would be amazing. I mean, anything that helps um, bridge the gap between automation and um, physical iOS devices is a win in my book because uh, Apple has not made it easy to, to do that kind of stuff. Yeah. And one other thing that'd be great in Swift PM uh, would be uh, support for package.swift files. So currently, uh, if you're writing your package manifest, um, there's no auto-completion or really any other support in Xcode. You just have to define your package uh, using the the docs they provide on what's valid syntax. Uh, yes, when you invoke building via SPM, it'll tell you if you have errors there. Uh, but there's no real support uh, in Xcode itself, which yeah. would be nice. You're, you're kind of writing these manifests blind. Um, yeah. And you do end up uh, kind of gaining just in... Uh, 
an intuition or an understanding of what's supported in the syntax. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, Swift build will tell you if it's incorrect or if you have problems. But wouldn't it be great if your package.swift file um, could be viewed in Xcode and then you could command click on uh, the, the package and then you'd see all of the generated interface for, for that domain-specific language. Yep. Um, and then you'd see kind of what's supported, what's not, uh, the docs for all of these parameters that you can set. Um, and all of this is actually hats off to the Swift PM team because it is well documented um, in the uh, in the Swift Package Manager GitHub repo. Yeah. But uh, it's kind of a pain to have to context switch and pull that up uh, on GitHub in your browser, look up what that is where you could just command click and get to the generated interface. Right. And I think... Uh, Auto-completion for these things uh, is a good discovery tool as well. So if, um, you know, just having whatever symbol dot, you see what pops up and it's good to like discover what's possible. Absolutely. Especially now that um, uh, after the product uh, Swift Evolution proposal that was approved for Swift PM, where you can specify whether whether you want to build a static library or dynamic library or all sorts of things like that that have enums, that you can specify. Um, I missed that one. That sounds nice. Yeah, that that kind of flew in under the radar a little bit, but um, it should allow for, uh, one, building dynamic libraries with Swift PM, mm-hmm. which, taking a step back, I think it's kind of absurd that with Xcode, you can only build dynamic libraries with Swift, and right. with Swift PM, you can only build static libraries. Right. Um, <laughs> the two, you can't do the other with either one. Um, and so I, I think that's another clear low-hanging fruit is to kind of realign that. And um, obviously, the Swift PM team have been doing that already. They've been, they've been public about those changes. But this is just kind of another example where it'd be helpful to have Xcode's um, helping hand when you're writing your package manifest. Yeah, for sure. There's a few other like small integration points that'd be useful between Swift PM and Xcode. Uh, for example, Xcode already knows all of the tests that you've defined, um, all of your XC test tests, uh, because that's what it pulls up in the test navigator on the left pane. Um, and so wouldn't it be great if it just had knowledge of the static all tests um, members that, y- that you've defined in there and would let you know if one of them has an incorrectly typed string or if one of them um, is missing. That would be nice. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's low-hanging fruit, but it does require a slightly deeper level of integration and communication between Xcode and Swift PM. So uh, I think that's uh, an obvious thing to look out for. Yeah, actually, uh, that reminds me, uh, Ola Begeman wrote an article uh, a while back about how to deal with this exact problem. And um, he he had some kind of hacky uh, functions that, that would be called and kind of like verifying that you have all of your test cases like included in all tests. I can't remember all the details right now, uh, but... Uh, yeah, he kind of had uh, this kind of ad hoc solution to that exact yeah. problem. Yeah, I think if I recall correctly, it was a runtime hook into XC tests, okay. the Darwin version that right. would um, basically look at all the test invocations and then kind of print those out and compare to the all test member. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, there's another another way to do it, uh, which is using SourceKit, actually, where you can uh. go and parse um all of the all of that syntax information and just kind of extract all that. 
which isn't all that hard to do yourself either, but I don't think anyone's really packaged that up into an easy-to-run script necessarily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's a few ways if you if you want to hand-roll this yourself. Yeah, it'd be nice if uh, Xcode supported this, though. For Absolutely. Sure. Yeah, so there are a few other things that we were discussing uh, and thinking about uh, that don't really have any kind of hints in any of the Swift projects, but things that we think are really likely to happen at DubDub. Uh, going back to the syntax and structure editing uh, library for Swift, I think it's very likely we'll see uh, improvements to uh, Xcode source editor extensions. You know, those were announced last year. I think uh, there was a mix of excitement and disappointment uh, for those. Uh, excitement that we have like a more formal kind of plugin uh, API to like hook into, but disappointment that it was very limited. Uh, you can only write source editor extensions for uh, the current sor- source file, which is obviously very limiting. Uh, but with this new library um, and these new tools, perhaps Xcode will expand that to give your extension access to the entire project in which we could write uh, like legitimate refactoring extensions. Yeah, the source extensions in Xcode 8 were clear kind of V1 of that. Um, and so there's a lot of room for, for improvement uh, or rather extension there. I see what you did there. That's right. <laughs> Terrible pun. Uh, so I think, uh, yeah, that's that's an obvious place to look at. And another similar kind of V1 was Swift Playgrounds for iPad, mm-hmm. um, where... I think there was a very strong focus on the educational aspect um, for for Swift Playgrounds for iPad, but a lot of that uh, infrastructure can be reused to do things like, say, um, share playgrounds between macOS and iOS, uh, or I don't know, maybe we'll see some some other improvements to Swift Playgrounds on iPad. Maybe it'll be a separate app, right, where Playgrounds is more educationally focused, and then this. Other thing might be kind of the precursor to uh, more fully fledged developer uh, environment on I- on on iOS. So I'm curious to see what happens there. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think you can share playgrounds now, right, through iCloud. You can. Yeah, uh, I haven't done much of that. I don't know how like seamless it is. Not exactly straightforward. I see. Yeah, I'm I'm not even sure how you need to do it. You'd need to have a playground that's. Uh, available to a document provider on iOS. Mm-hmm. So I think like if you had a playground stored in Dropbox, you might be able to open that up um, from the document provider. And then the Swift Playgrounds for iPad app um, is registered to support that document type. Right. Uh, not exactly the most straightforward thing. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of potential for um, smoother integration or, or lower friction uh, when it comes to reopening the same playground as you have on your Mac on an iPad. I see. Yeah, that uh, a better kind of sync uh, and, yeah, like interop there between the Mac OS and playgrounds and, and iPad playgrounds would be nice. I mean, wouldn't it be great if you just had a menu item in Xcode playgrounds on your Mac uh, that if you had an iPad with Swift playgrounds uh, installed on that iPad, you just have send to iPad, right? right? Um, I think that would be very powerful. Right. Or just complete syncing behind the scenes and you don't even have to worry about that. That'd be nice. 
Um, I could see this like if you're if you're working on like a conference talk that has sample code, yeah, and then you can like work on your iPad as well as your Mac to uh, to flesh that. Or the, you're teaching a class, right? Um, and this is where maybe like one to many multi device sync would be more helpful. You know, you could push an update to to the playground to all of your students that. I'll have iPads or, or something. I don't know if that's a thing that classrooms actually have. <laughs> but it would be a very powerful experience. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Uh, I'm sure we'll see at least new content announced for Swift Playgrounds uh, on iPad probably. Yeah, that um, content is amazing. It's unbelievably well crafted um, and seems very uh, engaging as content. Yeah, definitely. I, I've only looked through a little bit of it, but I was pretty impressed by like how much was was in there. So, well, other than this, uh, it's actually been a somewhat uh, quiet couple of weeks. Um, a few weeks back, there was kind of uh, a few big pushes to get a bunch of proposals through and get those implemented, uh, reviewed, accepted, and implemented. Uh, now, just like last year, we're kind of in this like quiet area leading up to WWDC. Yeah, it's clear that uh, the folks at Apple have a lot on their plate um, with whatever is going to happen um, uh, when WWDC comes around. Um, And actually comparing to last year is is an interesting uh, uh, exercise, right? Because last year there were lots of hints for um, things like the object memory graph debugger that shipped in Xcode 8. Um, where uh, there was a huge push, I think mostly by Slava, um, for out-of-process reflection into Swift types that eventually led to enabling the object memory debugger. And I really haven't seen anything equivalent to that this year on on the lower-level side of things, whether that's LLDB or if it's uh, LVM or some of the analysis passes or uh, TSAN, ASAN. Like, there was a big push for that last year, and I haven't seen something similar to that this year. Yeah, Anna Zax did a bunch of work on the thread sanitizer uh, getting those PRs in uh, last year. Surprisingly, I think I think it was Chris Latner, maybe someone else from the core team actually tweeted about those PRs, which was interesting because it was, you know, obviously it was like this big reveal for a new feature in Xcode, right? But still kind of subtle at the time. Yeah, um, and this is... Uh... Going back to our theme of kind of the duality of Apple when it comes to Swift, where they have uh, a very secret side and a very open side, and um, and that that kind of is what spurred this episode. Actually, is knowing that by looking at the open side, we might get some hints into what they're planning and, and haven't yet announced. Um, neither Jesse nor myself have insider knowledge of any of this, by the way. Um, And in fact, if we did, we would probably avoid talking about it. So uh, all of this is entirely speculation on our part. Yeah, and I think that's all we have for this episode. Um, You can find me on Twitter, uh, Jesse underscore Squires. You can find me on Twitter at SimJP, and the show is at Swift underscore Unwrapped. And uh, uh, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Copaton. Uh, you can find them at copaton.com slash Swift Unwrapped. Thanks for listening. <laughs>